This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly, and we're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author C.L. Polk discusses her debut novel, Witch Mark. Then PW's senior writer, Andrew Albanese, recaps ALA. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by NPD BookScan. What's happening in hardcover nonfiction, Mark? So uh, I'm going to uh, just jump around. I'm not going cover everything because we got a lot on there, but I just want to cover the big titles and mm-hmm. the titles we have reviews of. Here's one, The Legend of Zelda Encyclopedia. This is the exhaustive guide to the Legend of Zelda from the original Legend of Zelda to Twilight Princess HD. And this one is at number one and at number ten. How'd they manage that? Two different versions. Aha, two, different, two different editions. One the regular, the other the deluxe. Uh, so that's what we have at numbers one and ten. Pretty impressive. Yeah, I thought so too. Uh, number three, Fail Until You Don't, Fight, Grind, Repeat by Bobby Bones. He's the author of Bare Bones, host of the Marquee Morning Program, The Bobby Bones Show. And that book is at number three. He here delivers a uh, inspirational and humorous collection of stories about his biggest misses in life and how he turned them into lessons uh, and wins. At number five, we have Yes, We Still Can, Politics in the Age of Obama, Twitter, and Trump by Dan Pfeiffer. Pfeiffer is the uh, co-host of Pod Save America and a former Obama senior advisor. And we say this is an entertaining work of memoir political strategy, which spells out the strengths of his old boss as campaigner and president and seeks to shed light on why Donald Trump won in 2016. We see those who share Pfeiffer's admiration of Obama and his hopes for a democratic resurgence, and of course, fans of his podcast will love both the chatty insider anecdotes and the advice. At number 18, we have First, We Make the Beast Beautiful, A New Journey Through Anxiety by Sarah Wilson. Wilson, a journalist, is the author of I Quit, borrows the title of this uplifting earnest memoir from a Chinese proverb on the theme of acceptance, Using one's anxiety to find purpose, she believes, can make life beautiful. Uh, anxiety seems to be a, a theme that we've seen on many books come out, and mm-hmm. our guest last week uh, about anxiety. Anxiety and, Amanda, and politics. And politics, exactly, <laughs> exactly. That Our guest last week was Amanda Stern. Uh, we say this book is amusing, practical, and filled with delightful asides. And it will appeal to anxiety-prone readers who will find much to calm them in these pages. Uh, Finally, at number 19, Room to Dream by David Lynch and Christine McKenna. And this, of course, is the avant-garde director Lynch, who's known for Twin Peaks, Elephant Man, Blue Velvet. Uh, Remembers a life as surreal as his movies in this exuberant biography memoir. Kind of goes back and forth between Lynch's first-person narrative and biographical accounts written by McKenna. The result is... According to our review, an entertainingly offbeat showbiz saga and a fine evocation of Lynch's unique voice and sensibility. 
What about fiction? What about fiction? Not much happening. The President is Missing is still at number one. Right. 60,000 copies sold in hardcover this week, according to NPD BookScan. That's still enough to keep it sitting pretty up there. Uh, sold twice as many copies, just about, as uh, the next book down. Number mm -hmm. two, The Perfect Couple by Ellen Hildebrand. We don't have a review of this, but uh, it's definitely beach read season. Right. Uh, we're definitely starting to see all of those beach umbrella, tote bags, sunglasses, ocean waves covers uh, as they come washing up on our shores. Right. Um, this is one of those. It's set in Nantucket during wedding season, also known as summer. Uh, and there's a wedding <laughs> happening. Um, um, but then a body is found in Nantucket Harbor and everyone in the wedding party is a suspect. So oh. this has some family drama, some mystery, some fun in the sun. All right. And that's at number two. And uh, moving down the list a little bit at number 10, Bring Me Back by B.A. Paris. Uh, we gave this a starred review and said that uh, it's an outstanding Hitchcockian thriller from uh, Paris, who's a British author. Uh, and in this book, uh, investment manager Finn McQuaid has settled into a comfortable routine in a small English town, uh, bolstered by financial success, but his tranquility is shattered when a friend phones to tell him that his old girlfriend who vanished 12 years earlier has been spotted. And uh, he has since married his vanished girlfriend's sister. Oh, so there's yeah. some uh, some interesting, complicated things happening, and uh, yeah, the the stakes rise. He begins getting emails purportedly from the vanished, reappeared woman, and uh, we say that Paris builds uh, plays fair with the reader as she builds to a satisfying resolution, and this is intelligent psychological suspense. So uh, nice to see that doing so well. And uh, just a couple of spots down from there at number 12, The Scar Invasion by Terry Brooks. I'm pleasantly surprised to see that Brooks is still a reliable bestseller. He's been writing uh, epic fantasies for a very long time. And uh, this is the latest one in the Shannara series. Uh, we say that in our review that Brooks's prose and characters remain unremarkable, but he does a better job of juggling multiple storylines in this multi-volume of the final Shannara epic fantasy trilogy than he did in, his, in its predecessor. And uh, Brooks keeps the narrative flowing briskly and makes it accessible to newcomers, which, you know, for a series that's been kicking yeah. around for a few decades is uh, both challenging and necessary. Right. You know, there, there are fantasy readers out there... Uh, in college, who are younger than this series, right? Right. So, right. Um, you know, he's uh, he's got to a, a real broad audience to write for, and with this coming up on the bestseller list, it looks like he's succeeded. So right. that's what's happening over there. All right, I'm Mark Rotella, and I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, CL Polk tells us about her love triangle with fantasy and romance. We'll be right back. I'm Mark Oshiro, author of Anger Is a Gift. And you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got C.L. Polk on the line. Her new book is Witchmark. Hi, Chelsea. I'm so glad you could join us. I'm glad to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me. So this is your debut uh, fantasy novel set in an alternate early 20th century in a land that's sort of like England recovering from a war that's sort of like World War I. So set the scene for us. Tell us, tell us what's happening and, uh, and kind of bring us there. Kingston is the capital city of, of Ayland, and it's a, a, a modern city by kind of early modern standards. It's um, a city full of skyscrapers. The streets are full of bicycles. And um, all of the, our young men are coming home from an imperialistic war. 
um, between Ayland and a, and, and a trans-oceanic country called Lanier. Um, Dr. Miles Singer was actually um, serving in that war until he was returned home from an injury. And uh, he's just trying to keep his head down and use his healing gift where he can without getting caught. You're talking about this healing gift. This is a magical gift. So tell us about how this particular place handles the existence of people with magical powers. Um, unfairly, um, if you are an aristocrat, uh, a member of the elite of Ayland, then you are part of a secret society known as the Invisibles. You answer to the queen and you do magic for her, um, unknown by the rest of the population. Whereas if you're not an aristocrat, then what happens is, is if someone discovers that you have the powers of magic, they call you a witch. They say that you're at risk of going insane the more you use your power. And for the protection of society, you are institutionalized for the rest of your life in an asylum. So that sounds um, pretty intense. Um, yes, it's, um, Miles's risk is if he gets caught, then he could wind up in a trial that would direct him to an asylum. Or worse, his aristocratic family could find him and drag him back to the fold, rescuing him from imprisonment, but subjecting him to servitude to his younger sister. So tell us a little bit more about Miles, the magic he has in the family, and his family, of course. Um, Miles is the eldest son of the family, of the Hensley family, and um, he didn't get the magical gift that the Invisibles value above all else, which is the ability to control, um, to control Aelin's weather. Uh, he wound up with an ability that makes it so that he can actually see into the anatomy of a living person's body and control it with his mind so that he's able to... Um, cure sickness and disease, help people um, knit up broken bones faster. And as part of his training in medical school was to become a surgeon. So he's probably, we're going to argue that he is the best surgeon in Ayland, but he is um, too traumatized to actually do any surgery currently in the scope of the story. And tell us a little bit about his sister, who is in some ways a, a villain or a foil to him. Uh, his younger sister, Grace, does have the power to be able to control the weather. Um, and she's also next in line to leadership of not just the Invisibles, the secret society that, that answers only to the Queen, but she's also going to be the highest person in Aelin's government. She's going to be the chancellor of Aelin, which basically means that she uh, presides over parliament meetings. And uh, in the case of a tie, she casts the deciding vote. Hmm. So that's a, that's significant power. Yes, quite a lot of power. Grace is in a bit of a position because the political standing of her family among the Invisibles, it has taken a hit because Miles actually abandoned his family and faked his death. So he disappeared uh, so that he could go off and join the army and uh, become the healer that he wanted to become. 
And her aim is to get Miles to come back to the family, to come back and accept his role as um, as a secondary mage, which is basically, we don't care about your abilities. We don't care how useful they could potentially be to the country. What we care about is your raw magical power and being able to hook it up to a real mage who has the abilities that we need. So where is, where is uh, he living? Where's Miles living uh, in relation to his father and um, to his family and within, uh, within the city? Um, the thing about the geopolitics of Kingston is that the farther west you go, the more affluent you are, with the exception of the palace, which can't actually move its location. It's been there for the last 1,600 years, which is more towards the center of town. Um, Miles lives on the east side in a neighborhood known as Birdland because all of the all of the avenues are named after are named after bir- birds that you can find in Ayland. Um, he lives in a boarding house. Uh, his room is probably about six feet wide by twelve feet long. Um, he is roomed next to a false wall in the old retiring room. His neighbor is a boilermaker who snores loudly. Mm. So uh, he's he's come he's come quite away, and you mentioned that he's traumatized as well. Is that from the war? Um, yes. Um, in the backstory of Miles Singer, he was a um, a surgeon in the army, and uh, he was captured by the enemy um, because they figured out that he had his. He had a healing ability that made it possible for him to save the unsavable in his field hospital, uh, and they took him away. Hmm. And so while he's there, he meets, uh, not in the war, but uh, back in uh, back in, in the city, uh, Tristan Hunter. Tristan Hunter. Uh, Tristan Hunter is a gentleman. He keeps a, a fine house in a good neighborhood. Uh, he wears the very best of clothes, and uh, he generally rides around in a horse-drawn carriage uh, as opposed to using a bicycle like most people do. Um, but he isn't quite what he seems. He isn't actually an alender. Uh, he isn't human at all, actually. So tell us a little bit more about that, because this is the first time you've mentioned non-human characters as well as magic-using characters. Um. Tristan is an amaranthine um, that is the supernatural creatures who live in a pocket dimension, which was the um, which was the bit of the reality the original creator Pantheon used in order to form the world that Aeland is part of. And um, amaranthines are descendants of those gods um, with. There's a little bit of a, a Greek mythology thing going on where the creator gods kind of got romantically involved with certain mortals and their children are the Amaranthines. So they're half divine, inherently magical, um, fabled in, in stories told to children about, you know, if you, if you don't behave, an Amaranthine will come and deliver justice to you. And you won't like that at all because amaranthines are fairly harsh when it comes to delivering punishments to people. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, Tristan is in Ayland because he's trying to solve a mystery um, that's taking place in his in his land called the Solus. It's the land of the dead. It's where your soul goes when you die. Um, in that, for a very long time, there haven't been any souls coming in from Ayland to the Solace. And they left it alone because they assumed that everyone there died. But when it started happening that the flow of souls from the country of Lanier started to slow down, trickle to a stop, and stop completely, they sent two people to investigate. They sent um, they sent one to Lanier and they sent one to Ayland. And Tristan is the, is the amaranthine they sent to Ayland to investigate what was happening with the souls. And he and Miles uh, team up and also develop a romance. So tell us a little bit about developing uh, all of these threads in a in a complex setting. You've got you know, a kind of adventure story or, or a, a mystery story as they're investigating this mystery of the missing souls. And um, you've also got a romance thread and you've got the political threads happening in, in the background. How did you go about kind of developing and, and balancing all of those story elements? Um, I tried very hard to make sure that all of the story elements had connections to one another um, both thematically and in the reality of the story. Um, so Tristan is there to try and find the souls, and and part of his mission is he's trying to find a particular kind of witch who is able to speak to the dead, and he has not been able to find one. Um, in fact, um, the first witch that he meets is uh, a gentleman by the name of Nick Elliott who is... Um, a newspaper columnist who has rushed out of his apartment building to try and get help because he's been poisoned and he's dying. Mm. Um, and when Tristan has his carriage stopped to help Nick, Nick asks specifically to go to Miles' hospital, Viergard Veterans, even though a better funded hospital is closer by. And this is how Tristan meets Miles because Nick was looking for Miles specifically to help him. Um, when Nick dies and he extracts, his, he extracts a promise from Miles to investigate his murder, um, because he was on the trail of a story that he obviously got too close to the answer, um, Tristan is right there and he steps in and says, I would like to help you. And um, Miles isn't really willing to go out of his way to investigate the murder of a witch that he doesn't even know, but circumstances pile up that make it important for them to find out the truth behind Nick Elliott's murder. Um, but Nick Elliott isn't the only one who knows that Miles is working at Beauregard Veterans Hospital. Um, Miles' sister Grace manages to track him down and is asking him to come back to the family. Um, and her story is connected to the, um, the mystery of the souls. And so she acts, as, she acts as a minor antagonist throughout the story because um, her view and Miles' view are opposed to each other. Um, and then meanwhile, in the background, woven through this are newspaper stories about particularly troubling 
um, particularly troubling events where veterans lose their touch with reality and wind up murdering people, attacking them with knives, and nobody understands why or what the pattern is. And that's something that Miles is working on at his hospital um, as he tries to talk to the patients that he has. So he's got a bit of a, a medical mystery going on as he's trying to uncover whether um, the signs that he sees in his patients have anything to do with the murders that are happening that are going on in the papers at the same time as the story. There are a lot of elements, and I just kind of braided them all together. And it didn't occur to me that I was doing something really complicated until I stepped back and said, oh, wait, this is a lot. So tell us about how you came up with this idea for the story and, and what it was like writing it, how it all came out. The way the story worked is that I kind of had an inkling of the city that I wanted to write about and about its various neighborhoods and um, what was happening there at the time, which was very much um, soldiers coming home from a war, um, traumatized by what they experienced during that war. And the main mystery was the mystery of the soldiers uh, at first. And then I just kind of found more ideas and added them to the basket that I was carrying the story in until I found a picture of I found a picture of um, sto- of soldiers World War One soldiers on parade and the lines of them walking down the street and I realized that all of the pieces that I had went together with this story in kind of a three feverish days of writing everything down. Um, And then after that, I wrote the first draft fairly quickly and then took my time about refining it. We're going to take a quick break. Don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors, and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with C.L. Polk, author of Witchmark. One of the things we haven't gotten into very much is this complex war that's in the background. How did, how did that war start? The war basically started, it started deliberately. This isn't something that I talk about in the book, but it started because um, someone in power on the cabinet and in charge of foreign affairs wanted to renegotiate a trade deal with Lanier, only they wanted it to be ridiculously in their favor. And Lanier wasn't really willing to do that. And diplomatic tensions increased until Lanier actually kicked all of Aylin's diplomats out of the country. Um, there was a, a regime change, and the new leader kicked all of the Aylanders out. Um, and then the cabinet member, per, Sir Percy Stanley, um, used that as an excuse to say that the leaders were bad and that um, Lanier was in danger and that 
Aelin needed to save them, so they just trumped up an excuse to create this war um, in order to um, colonize Lanier and take all of its resources. Mm. So it sounds like you've got a lot of really contemporary themes going on in here, um, justifications for war, veterans who are traumatized, class tensions. Uh, How much of that was sort of woven in deliberately? Um, well, it wasn't like I sat down and thought, I will write a book about imperialism, or I will write a book about post-traumatic stress disorder. It was, um, it was the product of thinking about the kinds of world-building conditions that I wanted and what the effects and consequences of those um, world events were. Um, and I was thinking about World War I, particularly about how soldiers came home traumatized and discovered that there was no work for them and about the tensions that went very, very high um, immediately after the war, particularly in England in the early 20s where people were turning to, um, were turning to the labor movement and communism uh, in order to try and effect some kind of a, a change to make their lives better. Um, and again, um, I don't really get into that in the book. It's there in the background, but it's not something that um, Miles is really concerning himself with. So there's another element in your book, is, uh, is, and this is a relationship that develops between Miles and Tristan. Um, the relationship that develops between Miles and Tristan was kind of the, it was the lightness that I wanted to put over all of this, um, kind of depressing, kind of dark um, story. The the relationship between Miles and, and Tristan where they, um, they have a romance with each other um, was the part of the story that I kind of wanted people to kind of have to hold on to hope while they were reading some fairly dark themes. Hmm. And so I just have to say, you say in your bio, in your bio on your website that you are in a love triangle with fantasy and romance. So, so we mm-hmm. have the fantasy element and now you, you were just talking about the romance element. Tell us about that, about that love um, triangle. Basically, I've always really, I love fantasy and science fiction as a kid. My grandmother and I used to watch the original Star Trek um, when it was first syndicated in reruns in the 70s. And I went on from there. I continued to read fantasy and I continued to read science fiction. And then when I became an adult, I picked up a romance novel Mm. just because there wasn't anything else to read. And I was a voracious reader. And what I discovered was that I loved romance novels. I loved them. I, you know, I would read them by the bushel basket. And a few years ago, a friend of mine, uh, and a, a romance novelist, her name is Kimberly Bell, uh, came to me and said, can we start a Twitter chat for romance writers, professional romance writers? And so I was at the time kind of waffling in between, should I write romance novels or should I write fantasy novels? And then I said, why not both? Yes, both. Both is good. <laughs> and that's how I came up with Witchmark. And uh, you live in southern Alberta, uh, which uh, recalls a Katie Lang song. How how much does where you live influence what you write? Um, 
Hmm. I wasn't really I wasn't really thinking about my hometown of Calgary when I was coming up with Kingston. Um I was thinking I was thinking more about London, I was thinking about New York, I was thinking about Chicago, mm. and I was thinking about Toronto, um, all in the late 19th, early 20th century, what kind of, what kind of cities there were. Um, the only one of those cities I have ever visited is Toronto. I've never been to Chicago, New York, or London, but it's on the list. Um, Calgary doesn't really doesn't really come into it not even with the weather patterns i chose a different uh i chose a different region to um for the climate where calgary is quite dry um and i was thinking more about the the pacific northwest where you can put just about anything in the ground and it'll grow so if you haven't visited these cities that were your inspiration what was your uh research like um I read a book, let's see if I can remember the title, I believe it was London in the 19th Century, A Human Awful Wonder of God, and the name of the author escapes me. And the book starts out immediately by talking about a neighborhood in East London that was raised um, without any consideration to the poor residents who live there in order to create a new road. <laughs> and um, it, it was basically talking about it was it was talking about how gentrification isn't a new thing. Mm. How London has the bones of the same city that has been there for thousands of years and uh, has gone ahead and paved through and about the tensions and everything that happened um, in London in the 19th century. And I kind of was like, well, this is good for the history of Kingston. Um, for New York, I turned to a blog. It's called Bowery Boys, mm -hmm. and um, basically followed followed their their posts. Um, I read some historical novels that were set in New York, um, usually in the 19th century, not necessarily in the 20th. And I did a, a lot of um, I did a lot of reading about. Chicago's skyscrapers period about how when it was the white city and everyone was building these gloriously tall buildings and I thought I want that for my city which is a lot different from Calgary which is a lot different from Calgary <laughs> Calgary um didn't really grow skyscrapers until much later right I, I love the juxtaposition, the skyscrapers and the bicycles. It just sounds like a very fun setting to get to write and explore. Um, yes, it's, it had its potential to be New York City in the late 19th century. They had a bicycle craze hmm. where people were very into bicycles um, and were riding them all about town. They'd have social events surrounding them. There were races. Um, and it was just kind of the Sunday afternoon thing to do, but it died off um, when bicycles became affordable. Um, and what I did with Kingston was that I had the bicycle craze, but when bicycles became affordable, that's when it hit. That's when it took off and everybody started riding instead of keeping horses, because keeping horses in the city is actually quite expensive. And I wanted something a little bit more practical and a little bit more like what I'm used to. I haven't really been near a horse. I ride a bicycle year round. Mm. And, um, and so I kind of wanted to 
to give people a taste of what it's like to actually ride a bicycle to get around, how social it is, which is the thing that surprised me the most. And do you have any tips for writers like you who are tossing around ideas for their first books and maybe not thinking too hard about complexity uh, or uh, what they've what they've gotten themselves into and and just uh, just really digging into those ideas for the first time? Um, I think my first my first piece of advice is to be patient um, because I took uh, probably about six months just thinking about the world and the the possible plot lines and the characters without really pushing myself to must write a book now. I took the time to think about my world, um, not necessarily write down every exhaustive detail, but just to kind of hold it in my mind and think about um, and and to, to allow it to just kind of mature in my head. Um, my second piece of advice is make a continuity world-building Bible um, so that you can refer back to the things in your in your story, have reference materials, just in case, just in case your publisher asks you for a sequel. I have to say that my continuity Bible has saved me. And my third and final piece of advice is finish the book and then abandon it for six months before coming back to... Um, do a revision um, because it's an absolute luxury that you're never going to get back. Mm. Yeah, for for future books, if you're on a tight contract, you might not have the the time to do that. Yeah, I I'm just finishing the sequel to Witchmark um, right now, and um, I didn't I didn't have the time to sit back for six months and just think about what I was doing. I had to be ready to go right away. And that's something that I would I would suggest to any um writers who are dealing with a complicated fantasy novel is to um get your continuity down on paper so that you can remember it because you're going to need it for the sequel and they're going to ask you for a sequel. Well, I hope that uh, every every debut author out there is as fortunate to have a publisher leap up and say, sequels, sequels, we need them. <laughs> We've been talking with C.L. Polk, and you can find her book, Witchmark, in stores right now, and a sequel coming out, it sounds like, sometime soon. Chelsea, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you very much for asking me. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW senior writer Andrew Albanese talks about ALA. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Tessa Fontaine, the author of The Electric Woman, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors, and today PW senior writer Andrew Albanese is here to give us a wrap-up of ALA. Uh, You gave us a wonderful preview about what it might be. uh, And how did all that, especially with Michelle Obama and a couple of the uh, discussions that you knew were uh, brewing, how did it all pan out? Well, it turned out to be a rather headline-grabbing meeting, I have to say. (laughs) Uh, Michelle Obama indeed was a highlight. Librarians started lining up at about 8 in the morning 
just to get a good spot. I mean, everybody could get into the hall, but I think people just wanted to be up close to her. It's mm. a testament to how highly regarded the former first lady is. And librarians party till late at night. So getting up at eight in the morning. Like... Maybe they were up all night. Maybe they didn't sleep. Maybe they just went right to the line. <laughs> and in New Orleans? Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm like, I, I bet people listening who don't know librarians think I'm kidding. I'm not kidding at all. They party hard. They're not kidding. Uh, aside from Michelle Obama, or do you want to hit some of the, the highlights of what she said while she was there? Yeah. Michelle Obama largely avoided politics. In fact, entirely avoided politics, mm. which... I was somewhat disappointed about was not unexpected. Um, ALA is a nonprofit organization. They have to be somewhat careful about what they say from the stage in terms of endorsing a specific policy or not. But the fact that she showed up at the American Library Association meeting um, in the midst of a border crisis entirely of the Trump administration's making and on the heels of the American Library Association releasing a statement strongly condemning that policy and that it didn't come up at all on the stage, to me, was somewhat disappointing. I felt like there probably was a way for her to say something about it. Mm. That said, she gave an absolutely rousing talk, very entertaining. She delighted librarians with with her talk of uh, basically reflecting on her life in the White House as First Lady and as a mother and struggling to sort of meet the expectations of the office. Um, I think a lot, I think it's going to be a huge bestseller. I think it's an empowering message and uh, librarians did not seem disappointed in the least that she didn't address meteor subjects. Mm. I know that at least the, uh, the publicity for the book is she talks about her early life growing up, uh, but then also her entry into politics, but also in, in uh, hospital administration. Mm -hmm. Well, she really talks about that she had big jobs before yeah. she became first lady of the United States. She was an executive. She had a career track that was impressive and, and on the ascendancy. And then her husband, she referred to it as a rocket ship ride. And she really had to sort of come to grips with, you know, is it fair that we're on his rocket ship? And I have a rocket ship too. Mm. Um, and she you know, talked about trying to raise children and with a sense of normalcy when they had to have secret service details and yeah. you know, every sleepover involved having to, a secret service sweep <clears throat> of the house ahead of time. But it really, the, to me, the, the, the most important thing that's going to come out of the book is the idea of, of uh, women knowing their value, mm. like not just saying that this is what society expects of me and this is the way it has to be, but really being able to put a number on it. I thought that was empowering stuff. And I think it's going to be, the book is going to be right on time and a huge bestseller. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. And so what were the other big topics there? I'm curious about the Loringles. Yeah, so the, uh, I'm sure our listeners by now have heard that the uh, a division of the American Library Association took the name Laura Ingalls Wilder off a popular children's award. Uh, and basically this was... In reconsideration of, you know, some of Laura Ingalls Wilder's depictions of race and Native Americans in her work. And to me, it's funny that this, this has made national headlines. And, and, and really, if you read the statement from ALA about changing the name of the award, it's sort of been misappropriated and now turned into this huge conversation about censorship and <laughs> changing history and all this stuff. And that's not at all what it's about. I mean, frankly, the, if, if you read the ALA statement, it makes a lot more sense. You know, there are a lot of kids that walk into the library these days and to open a Laura Ingalls Wilder's book and seeing those portrayals. I mean, this is, this is, nobody's saying take those books off the shelves. The ALA explicitly said, we're not saying take these books off the shelves. We want you to continue to read these books, but we want you to think about how you frame these discussions going forward. And that, you know, we're just not comfortable 
having this name on this award, which is to celebrate children's literature, doesn't reflect the values of the association, which include inclusiveness. Uh, for me, it was an entirely reasonable position for them to take and generated the predictably unreasonable <laughs> response from, from many in the media. Well, I've certainly seen a lot of authors celebrating it. Yeah, as have I. Um, unfortunately, it seems to be drowned out in the national media by this, you know, wanting to depict this as political correctness or make it a discussion mm -hmm. about political correctness. But if you just peel back that first layer and look at what really was going on and read the ALA's report, their fact-finding report on why they decided to change the name, mm. uh, it, makes, it makes a lot of sense. Remind us what the new name is. It is now, I believe, the Children's Legacy Media Award, the Children's okay. Legacy Award, I okay. think. Was that a, a panel that was happening there? Or was this just something that came out? This was a committee. Okay, yeah. Yeah, there was uh, the annual, every year, the divisions and committees have their, their meetings. This was at a, a membership meeting. So that's yeah. when they decided to have the vote and change the name. It's the Children's Literature Legacy Award. Thank you. Children's Absolutely. Literature Legacy Award. I had to take a moment to look that up and make sure I was getting <laughs> so, it right. But, um, you know, that sounds like an, a name that's not likely to need to be changed again in the future, which I'm sure was part of their uh, their reasoning. Yeah. The, I mean, the whole idea that we're erasing history and tarnishing a legacy is just not true. I mean, we are... It's not at all what changing yeah. the name was about. And nobody's erasing anyone's legacy for right. Eagles Wilder popularized the genre of children's literature, but things change. Progress is made in, in, in the world, and I think that this is a proper name change to reflect that. And if we think about tarnish, what happens is just exposure over time means tarnish develops. You know, that, that reputation is tarnished simply by being in the oxygen of the world over time. And so we move on. I think what would have tarnished the award more is to have this consider this discussion continue to loom out there without yes. any action. So yes. agreed. Uh, yeah. I'll say great. the ALA certainly did the right thing and they acted swiftly. So they'd be applauded for that as well. I mean, this issue came up less than four months ago and you know, they didn't, they, they put together a committee, a fact finding mission and uh, made their decision straight away. So kudos to them for that. So where was the, uh, the actual ALA uh, conference held? Was it in right in downtown New Orleans and how easy could you get to Bourbon street and uh, all around there? It was right at the Memorial center. So right. the Memorial center is a really nice facility. New Orleans does have a, a very nice conference facility and it's about a 15 minute walk from Bourbon street. Great. And you would see yeah quite a few librarians out in the quarter. <laughs> Great. Um, you know, New Orleans, it's a terrific town. And there's mm -hmm. like, as I mentioned, when we spoke previously, there was a, there's a real special relationship between New Orleans yeah. and librarians as they were the first conference to commit to coming back. And the first ones to actually come back after Katrina and, uh, the, the mayor of New Orleans, Latoya Cantrell was there to greet wow. librarians and she gave them a lot of love from the stage, just kick things off. It was, it was a fairly well attended show too. Um, Almost eighteen thousand came, which wow. is not a bad turnout. Now, not that's at supposed all. to be a be, uh, book expo numbers. Certainly, well, they they get twenty. They, they had twenty three thousand last year in Chicago, but Chicago always draws well because it's in the ALA's hometown, right? Um, and it's a you know, frankly, an easier city to fly to than New Orleans and get yeah. in and out of. But you know, eighteen thousand is certainly a good number when you consider that this is the third major library conference. As our listeners will know, because I've been on the show quite a bit lately, this is the third major library conference in four months. Yeah, yeah. So right. it's it was. I think ALA is very happy with the attendance, and and certainly it was a star-studded slate of speakers from the stage and the main speaker program. And yeah, I, I think they're going to get a little energy coming out of this show for sure. 
Well, that sounds like it was a blast. Are there any other highlights that you wanted to touch on, or should we just uh, go read your recap in PW? You could certainly go read the recap. Uh, the other thing I might mention was Doris Kearns Goodwin, who has a book coming out on presidential leadership. Mm. And as I write in my recap, you know, she gave a, just a terrific overview of the four presidents, which she calls her guys, that she's been studying for years. Mm. It's Abraham Lincoln, Teddy Roosevelt, uh, FDR, and Lyndon Johnson. Mm. And she talks about the qualities. She said there's no master key to leadership, but she talked about the qualities that made them good leaders. And obviously, they all, they all faced trials and tribulations that are greater than the ones we're facing now. Um, and then the first question from the librarian in the Q and A from a librarian in the Q and A period was right. What you would expect? How can you give us hope for the future, given that our current uh, occupant of the Oval Office possesses none of the qualities <laughs> that right. you just run down? And she gave a good answer. She's you know she pointed out that we've faced a lot of trials and tribulations in this in this country before, and we've always come through it. There's something about the American spirit. So she said she's hopeful. But she also warned that if we don't get out to the polls and if we don't start making our voices heard, that she will start to worry. So would leave it there for librarians. You know, yeah. Be hopeful, but take action. Well, maybe the next time I walk into my library, I'll see voter registration forms lying around. Wouldn't that be interesting? I would be surprised if you didn't see that already. But uh, yeah, definitely. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for coming in. Always great to have you on the show and always great to have these event recaps. I feel like I was there. <laughs> <laughs> my pleasure as always. Thanks so much. And now a final word from our sponsors. Beyond the headlines, beyond the routine, beyond the book, I'm Chris Keneally, host of Copyright Clearance and his podcast series, Beyond the Book. And I'm Andrew Albanese, senior writer at Publishers Weekly. Join us each Friday for a publishing news week in review podcast unlike any other. Learn all the breaking news and catch the best analysis on developments in the book trade, copyright law, and much more. You already know business as usual. Now go Beyond the Book. Listen to the free series and subscribe at beyondthebook.com. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox. And you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another delicious author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcasts on iHeartRadio and iTunes. And hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 